0: Titus chapter one, and we're gonna look at verses 10 to 11, but I'm just going to read uh, from where we went over last week for a bit more context. So I'm gonna read from Titus one, uh, verses five, and I will finish at verse the end of verse 11. This is God's word. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer... As God's steward must be above reproach he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable a lover of good self-controlled upright holy and disciplined he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it for there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. This is God's word. Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite Scotsmen, said uh, when he was commenting on the early church in comparison to the modern church, He said, the difference is the early church feared false teaching and welcomed persecution. The modern church fears persecution and welcomes false teaching. It's a slight generalization, I'll admit, but the crux of it is certainly true. We we have a misprioritization that often ignores the dangers of false teaching False teaching is not innocent. And false teaching is not the most glamorous of topics to talk about. It's not really going to win you uh, that many favours with the majority of society. But false teaching is important because false teaching is not innocent. False teaching hurts people. False teaching is damaging. False teaching sends people to hell. False teaching must be addressed. And here Paul asks Titus, to take up this fight against false teaching. That's what he's doing. So what we just read out and what we went over last week, he's saying, I want you to appoint godly leadership. I want you to have uh, men who are faithful, men who are elders, uh, men who will bear the burden of instructing and rebuking. And then in verse 10, he gets to the reason why he wants this because there are many among you who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They have to be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, we're in a cultural moment, I think, in the, in the Western church where there is still somewhat of an aversion to addressing false teaching. It's quite ironic because in the wider society, We're quite happy to address false teaching and cancel people if they make one statement. We're pretty happy to say, right, condemned, excommunicated from society, um, sent off to whatever the secular equivalent of hell is. But when it comes to certainly evangelical teaching, there still seems to be somewhat of an aversion. Like I said, it's not a popular topic to talk about in addressing false churches or false teaching. There is a certain oversensitivity that makes people very hesitant to cause a stir when it comes to this topic or when it comes to addressing other churches that may be quite off in their theology or practice and you know someone in that church and you want to address it, often the response is, man, what's your beef with them? Just leave them. Don't be a heresy hunter. There's still somewhat of an aversion and to ignore This kind of false teaching is like a school teacher. If you remember at school, there would be the teachers who are on duty on the playground. And you imagine a school teacher on duty and she sees some kids having a wonderful time, uh, laughing about playing with some loose electrical cabling that has come out of the building. And then some other kids who are playing with a white powdery substance, having the time of their life. And she says, you know what? Who am I to get in their way? Who am I? to get in the way of their fun. I'm, I'm not gonna be that person. I'm just gonna let them go on and keep having fun and things will work itself out. It's totally irresponsible, negligent. And it is irresponsible, particularly in the context of elders, those who have charge over people, to allow something so potentially lethal to continue. It's irresponsible. There is a biblical basis for calling out false teachers and warning people against false teaching. That's what Paul is doing to Titus here. And in the letter of Timothy, he actually names names. Paul is quite happy to say Alexander and Hymenaeus, they're dangerous people. Stay away from them. So there is a need for us to be on guard against false teaching. And the wonderful reality about fighting false teaching is that it's not just someone's subjective opinion against someone else's subjective opinion, and it's just who is more persuasive. The wonderful reality about fighting false teaching is that we have an objective rule. We have God's Word. We have Scripture objectively handed down and preserved to allow us to determine who is inside and who is outside of orthodoxy. We actually have something objective. Now, just to address this, of course, not all scripture is easily understood to all. Peter even says this about Paul. He says some of Paul's scriptures are hard to understand. I give you that. So there are some scriptures which are hard to understand. But when it comes to things that are necessary for salvation... When it comes to things that are necessary for how one is, how a sinful person is made right with a holy God, Scripture is crystal clear on how that happens. Scripture is very clear. As Paul says, the Scriptures make us wise for salvation. They are sufficient to tell us how we as sinful people can be made right with a holy God in what God has done through Jesus Christ. And the London Baptist Confession of Faith actually addresses this where the confession says all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. So they're saying there are some things that aren't plain. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in scripture that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. So they're saying there are things that are necessary for salvation and even the unlearned. They're so clearly set forth that the big problem with humanity is sin and God has addressed this in His Son, Jesus Christ on the cross. So when it comes to the Gospel, Scripture is crystal clear that it is by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone that we are saved. And any teaching which threatens that is deemed false by what is set out in scripture. When it comes to other matters of scripture that are not absolutely necessary for salvation, like when Christ is gonna return or how often you take the Lord's supper or uh, baptism. We baptize believers, but there are other churches that we can admit are within (laughs) orthodoxy that baptize infants. We think they're wrong, but they are within, they are our brothers and sisters. So there are secondary matters And there is room within orthodoxy to disagree. But the two extremes we have to avoid is the one extreme of calling everything a first-hand issue, of saying this is a gospel issue, of being so dogmatic about your every belief that you will actually withdraw from people on secondary matters, about being so dogmatic, being so inflexible. That's one extreme. But then you also want to avoid the other extreme, which is calling everything a secondary issue. Just saying, you know what, yeah, that we can just agree to disagree on this and still hold unity, but it's like, no. If you deny things about the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you deny the Trinity, if you deny these things, no, these are not secondary issues. We have confessions that have existed for thousands of years that label what is within orthodoxy. So we want to avoid the two extremes. Not everything is first-hand, not everything is second-hand. There is a path of faithfulness that neither avoids controversy nor unnecessarily stirs up controversy. There is a path. It's narrow, but there is a path. And I believe it's a posture that always seeks unity. It's a posture that seeks unity. It's not a posture that seeks disunity. It's a posture that seeks unity until these firsthand matters, like the purity of God's Word, is at stake. And that's where you are more than happy to separate. So there is a path of faithfulness and this is what Paul wants for Titus. He does not want Titus to allow false teaching to run rampant. So rather than Paul saying to Titus, you know what, Titus, I realize it's difficult. There's some really dodgy people there, but just keep loving people. Just keep loving them. And what you know, we often mean by that is don't stir up controversy. Just keep loving them and they'll come around. Paul doesn't say that. He says, make sure they know they're wrong. He says, silence them rebuke, rebuke what is wrong, and then instruct what is right. So Paul very clearly describes his concerns with these false teachers. So let's briefly look at how Paul describes these false teachers here and then what they are teaching before we then look at what some of the dangers for us are. The first characteristic is insubordination. This is how Paul describes these false teachers, insubordinate To be insubordinate is, uh, it's literally the opposite of uh, submissive. So insubordinate is just basically not submissive, totally not submissive, disobedient. And the aversion to submission in any follower of Jesus, like we spoke about last week, if there is an aversion to submission in any follower of Jesus, it's dangerous. We are all called to submit to the Lord. But especially if there is a pattern of a lack of submission in any teacher that is lethal for those whom that person is teaching. And specifically in this context, the insubordination is to not submit to the Word of God. These false teachers and false teachers today Instead of coming under the word, they come over the word of God and assert their logic or their human reasoning over the word of God, over the plain scripture, and they rebel against it. So beware of any teacher whose conscience is not bound by the word of God. We should all, teachers should all have a Luther-like aspect where when he was facing death, he said, my conscience is held captive by God's word. I'm not going to recant. That's the true characteristic of a true teacher is their conscience is bound by God's word, whereas false teachers have a lack of submission to it. The second, they are empty talkers. These false teachers talk about empty and vain things. There's no substance to them. The the words have no power to transform since they don't ever get to the heart of humanity's problem, which is sin before a holy God. Their words are vain Whether in this context, like in this context, it's Jewish myths that seem to be going around, or whether it's the eloquent speech of Greek philosophy that um, Paul has to address in the Corinthian church that was common throughout the Greco-Roman Empire, it's all empty talk unless it centers on what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's all vain talk. As fancy, you can dress it up any way you want. The talk must center on Christ crucified. So that's why, as Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, I came to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I don't want to dress it up in such a way that it would actually empty the message of Christ crucified of its power. You could insert here, I came not to preach Jewish myths or genealogies, lest I empty the cross of Christ of its power. The power of the cross is in the simple message of Christ crucified. It's there. It gets to the heart of humanity's problem. It shows both how much God hates sin, how much our sin offends Him, and the extent of His love, how far He is willing to go to then redeem that sin, all in the cross of Christ. So the word of Christ has weight to it. The word of Christ nourishes, the Word of Christ pierces through hard hearts and transforms people. Everything else is vain and empty. Thirdly, they are deceivers. This is the reality of false teachers. They are deceptive. False teachers are wolves in sheep's clothing. If they're in sheep's clothing and it's a good enough outfit, you can't notice that they are a wolf. Superficially, you can't actually tell that they are a false Teacher And Satan, who is the chief false teacher, doesn't really use outright contradiction. He uses subtle deception. Did God really say that? A little bit of addition and a little bit of subtraction to get people just thinking that maybe God didn't really say that. Or maybe he said something else. Jude, in his letter, describes these people as those who creep in unnoticed And they pervert the grace of God into lewdness or licentiousness. That's false teachers. They should just creep in unnoticed. You don't know them. Paul says this to the Ephesians in Acts 20. Men will rise up from among you. They're within you. And they slowly pervert the grace of God. They pervert things, deceptively alter them to suit a different purpose. They are deceptive. Fourthly, they are greedy If you look at what Paul says here in verse 11, these people have to be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They are greedy, whether it's more status, more power, more finances, more converts, whatever it is in an unhealthy way. They are greedy for more. They have a ravenous appetite for unhealthy things. And this greed causes people to compromise on sound Doctrine and it almost always leads to collateral damage. Like it says here, they upset whole households. They're destroying whole households by teaching what they should not. This greed is like the total opposite to the posture of John the Baptist, who was very content to say, he has to become more and more, and I'm totally happy to just drift off into the background to become less and less. And that's the posture of true teachers is really to just become less and less as Christ becomes more and more. Now, this is how Paul describes the false teachers here. But what are they actually teaching? What are these insubordinate, vain talking, deceptive and greedy teachers perpetuating here in Crate? They seem to be perpetuating a Jewish flavored false teaching. If you notice in verse 10, Paul says there's, Um, Many, many of these false teachers, presumably native Cretans, but the main issue is these ones who are of the circumcision party. That's Jewish people, ethnically Jewish people. And in verse 14, Paul goes on to say that these people influence others to be like them in being devoted to Jewish myths. These Jewish stories, these stories that at that stage would have been extra biblical outside of what they held as scripture. And commands of people who turn other people away from the truth. So unnecessary commands. So there are clearly these Jewish teachers in Crete who spread this form of false teaching that has to do with Jewish myths. So it might be a little bit different to those in Galatia who in Galatia, they were actually basically clearly saying it's Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus the Mosaic law. There are these things that you have to have in order to truly have God's favor. And Paul is very clear to say, if you accept any of that, you undo grace completely. Grace is a gift. But here, this is kind of adding some weird um, uh, tangent from that to, to focus on these Jewish myths asserting a a Jewish culture as that superior to a Gentile culture. So you have to understand these Jewish myths and these genealogies which show our place as God's people. And it's likely that Paul addresses this again in chapter 3, where in chapter 3 of Titus in verse 9, Paul warns Titus to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless." That's like him saying, they're just vain and empty. All of this talk about Jewish myths and genealogies. And to, to just summarize this, the main issue with these false teachers is really that they major on minor things and they minor on major things. There's just a complete um mis-prioritization. They overemphasize Jewish myths Genealogies, matters of the law, which are not profitable. They're asserting them as very, very important, as essential to an understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in doing that, in asserting those things, in majoring on the minor things, they end up minoring on the major thing because the major thing, like the gospel, what God has done in Jesus Christ, appears to be a minor thing. It appears to be something that's not really sufficient. There's more to it. They're suggesting that there are higher levels of spirituality or superiority that seem to revolve around these Jewish myths and Jewish stories. So they major on minor things and they minor on major things. And this is the situation here in Crate. There are these Jewish flavoured false teachers who lack submission to God's word. They have speech that is vain and non-transformative. They're deceptive, so they subtly distort the truth. And they have this greed which ends up trampling people for self-benefit. It's not a pretty picture. And Paul is very clear that these people have to be silenced. They have to be muzzled. They have to be stopped. This requires confrontation. It requires addressing The wrong. This is the primary task of the elder in verse 9 to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I once heard the statement of um, talking about this subject and saying, Well, the best defense is a good offense. As if to say, we don't need to focus upon that. We just need to focus upon a good offense. I think that's irresponsible at times. I don't think that fits with this teaching. Paul is very clearly, clearly saying, No, you need defense and offense. You need to rebuke what is wrong. You need to very clearly say this is wrong and then you need to instruct in what is right. Like you imagine if you um, have a wife or a husband or a mother, father, someone who is very close to you, that you care for deeply and imagine that their name was being tarnished, that people were spreading false information about them, saying that this, this woman who you're very close to spends time with a lot of sinister men up to all sorts of things. She's a loose woman. You wouldn't just say, but she's also very caring. She also likes to help people. You would say, no, 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 no. you're dead wrong about that. That's not her. You're lying. You're spreading false information. This is who she is. You wouldn't just leave that false information undone. And if we care for Christ and the purity of God's word. We will likewise care about addressing the wrong, where his name is blasphemed, where the faith is tarnished. So that's the context in Crate. What about our context? What about false teaching in the 21st century, little neck of the woods like Tuggeranong, thinking particularly about the Western church in general? Uh, I don't know about you, but I haven't come across any people who are trying to lure me in by telling me about Jewish myths. I haven't come across anyone actually doing that. That's probably not all that common. So it's not really a false teaching that we need to be on our guard against, but we are exposed to similar false teachings, which always follow the same pattern of insubordination, empty talk and deception, and especially greed. And we don't have time to cover every form of false teaching. So all I want to do is give two examples of false teachings that we should be aware of and then how we ultimately protect ourselves against it. So these false teachings are not teachings which directly attack the gospel or the person of God. And the reason why I don't believe we have to address that is because we're in a different time in our society, but also because we have confessions and creeds on top of the clear rule of scripture we have confessions and creeds like the Nicene Creed which has been around for 1600 years and is very clear crystal clear on the person and work of Jesus Christ on the trinity on um, the relationship within the trinity these sorts of things Uh, they're very clear and although we have over a thousand denominations The vast majority of good churches and good denominations uphold the Nicene Creed. There is a solid rule of what is Orthodox Christianity that has been contended and we continue to contend for. But aside from that, I believe there are some false teachings which indirectly attack the gospel by specifically twisting what the gospel is supposed to give us twisting really in a way who God is and what he intends to do for humanity. The first is, of course, the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth and prosperity gospel. I won't spend too much time on this because I don't think it's as much of an issue in our culture. But this is the basic teaching where God desires you to be healthy, wealthy and successful. And uh, most of the time it is centered around material blessings. God wants you to be blessed materially. And these are usually like divine entitlements that you have and that you unlock by your faith. And it turns faith into something that someone conjures up within themselves so that if you're not materially blessed or if you are physically sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. You just need to have more faith because God really does want you to be materially blessed. It takes all of the promises for heaven and over them, and tries to make them now, and completely ignores the fact that we are called to follow a suffering servant, and that we will face persecution, and that many godly people die terrible, terrible deaths. Almost all of the apostles were martyred, many throughout church history. And there are many issues with the prosperity teaching, but it is fundamentally wicked and abominable, not because it simply preys on vulnerable people, usually in African countries, impoverished areas of the world, but because it makes people believe that Christ is not enough. It makes people believe that there is more to salvation than simply the fact that you are now united to Christ. It makes people believe that there's something wrong with trusting in Christ, yet living a life of suffering and poverty, that that's somehow a subpar salvation. But the gospel does not come to us so that we can gain material and self-centered blessings. The gospel comes and tells us that Jesus is the absolute treasure of all life and existence. He is the blessing In Him, we have everything we could possibly need, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So the prosperity gospel is totally dangerous. But there is this second new prosperity gospel that I believe we we need to be more on our guard against. This seems to be by far the most common form of teaching in the modern Western church. And I would say it is... A much better dressed, more down-to-earth, distant cousin of the prosperity gospel. It looks a lot more appealing. Basically because I think the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth and prosperity in our culture, that gospel really preys on um, impoverished areas of the world. We are an exceptionally affluent part of the world. So that doesn't really ring true here. And with the way society's going you're a bit of a sellout if you just want to become rich and famous. That's not authentic. And we're about authenticity in our culture. So I don't actually think that the health, wealth and prosperity gospel is all that powerful here. But there is this different, the the much better dressed, more down to earth cousin of the prosperity gospel. And this is the self-centered gospel. This is the believe in yourself gospel. It takes... The cultural message of human flourishing, that your life is about your happiness, and it blends that with what God has done in Jesus Christ on the cross. See, the reason the old prosperity gospel is no longer that appealing is because of, as I just said, the fact that we're not that kind of culture anymore. True prosperity in our culture. The way people would define true prosperity is to follow your ultimate dreams and desires, regardless of what anyone else says. True prosperity is to find and be yourself, to just get to your inner self, to really find who you are as an individual and then express that. And no one can, no oppressor can take that away from you. That's what true prosperity in our society really is. It's totally individualistic and self-centered. And that cultural message has well and truly funneled its way within the modern Western church. It takes the gospel message, but it applies it in a self-centered therapeutic way. it applies it in a very therapeutic way where it's there to buffer you as an individual and really make you feel better about yourself because of who you are. It's about your individual happiness one author, Dean and Sarah, who wrote a whole book about this, simply says it's, it's where um, people try and make Christianity look cool. It's like where people try and make Christianity look basically like everyone else in the world. So dress it up really spiffy, design churches that are tailored toward what is appealing in a uh, society. So make it really retro or whatever the flavor, whatever the cultural flavor of the time is. Uh, it's where people on stage have the latest fashion, exceptionally dressed, not not, too, not suit wearing, but I mean like really exceptionally dressed according to our society. And usually preachers and uh, the people on stage feel the need to um, have a certain level of irreverence about them, to make jokes every now and then, to make a bit of a comedic routine, because otherwise there would be an unhealthy level of reverence and we don't want to seem holier than thou. That's sort of the idea where Christianity tries to look really cool and appealing. And this is so that the message seems far more palatable in a self centered society. We are an oversensitive society. And the main message is there to give this form of therapy to the hearers to turn them inward to themselves rather than outward to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the main difference. So if the old prosperity gospel, if the health, wealth and prosperity gospel treats God like a genie, this gospel treats God like a life coach that is there to really help you and your dreams and desires to fulfill them. You are what's most important. God is there to kind of usher you along and support you. A few pats on the back, some gentle instruction, but really it's about your dreams and your desires. And it often has just enough truth mixed in with it to make it very difficult to detect. The reality is that God does want you to be happy. Like, there's truth in that. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. The difference is that the happiness that God desires is to be found solely in Him, not in ourselves, not in our self-centered lives. The happiness in God comes in a self-denying way rather than a self-pleasing way. See, at its core, this new version, this believe in yourself gospel, is actually an anti-gospel, it is an anti-gospel because it ultimately does not require you to die to yourself. It doesn't require you to die to yourself. You're already great. It just requires God to fix you for who you really are. The message requires you to find yourself and Jesus will make that happen. So in this false teaching, Jesus didn't really die to take your sin, which grossly offends God, He just came to excuse your sinfulness and then, like a life coach, bring you on this journey toward your happiness. And that's why the language, if you'll notice, the language of how we talk about sin has changed so that we talk about sin in terms of brokenness now. Brokenness doesn't make anyone take accountability for anything they've done wrong. You could be broken and someone else did that to you. Totally feeds in with a victim mentality culture whereas sin requires you to take accountability. You have sinned. You have offended God. Brokenness just means that you can be put back together as you already were. It's your environment that has caused this, whatever it may be. Jesus is really there to excuse what's wrong and then really lead you on the way to your happiness. It's a self-pleasing message rather than a self-denying message. And the gospel is good news. The reason the gospel is good news is because we were dead. We were dead in our transgressions. We had offended him so much. We were dead. We had no heart toward him. We were enemies. And yet in his love, he sends his son to take our sin upon himself to then free us from that free us from ourselves, and give us new life in Him. The gospel isn't there to revive the self-centered life we had, but was just a little bit broken. That's not the gospel. And this is often the difference between following a path of falsity or following the truth. It's actually in where our pleasures lie. See, a lot of this false teaching is to do with our pleasures and passions. Where are we going to find our pleasures and passions? Are they inside of ourselves and in this life that we can create and God can help? Or are they totally found in God? See, this is where actually some of these false teachers are right. The life of the Christian should be about pleasure and passion. It should. But of course, the difference is that The pleasure and passion is always found totally in Jesus Christ who is worthy of all of our attention, worthy of our whole lives and in him is the fullness of this life of joy and contentment in him. So there should be pleasure and passion and the way in which we guard ourselves against self-seeking pleasure, the way in which we guard ourselves against this false teaching is to become totally captivated with the majesty of Christ so that we seek our pleasure in Him. And I want to finish by looking at what the writer of Hebrews tells us about this just in the last five minutes. The reality is that we have to come face to face with the supremacy of Of Christ, with how utterly worthy He is of all of our devotion. And that is the only way that we will protect ourselves from being lured in by these very alluring false teachings. And this takes discipline, it takes spirit empowered grit to not succumb to this. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews, after detailing how wonderfully incredible Jesus is, how he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, he's better than everything in this world. And he says in verse one, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We have to pay much closer attention or we will drift. Life is like a river with a gentle stream, And the end destination is hell you don't have to do anything to go there you just drift along you just drift along in your life something miraculous has to happen for you not to end up at that destination and of course we know that This Christianity is not about what we do for God, but about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's the miracle that has to happen. But the evidence of that will then be in a life of discipline that does not simply drift, but goes against the tide in order to not succumb to the devastation of people who just drift along. If you drift... You're drifting away from Christ. You're drifting away from your true purpose. So we need this gritty discipline that is totally spirit empowered to not drift. So the author here in Hebrews says, let us therefore pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And then he just spends the rest of his time basically saying how much better Jesus is than Moses. How much better Jesus is than Abraham. How much better Jesus is than angels how He's our great high priest, how He upholds the universe. Pay much closer attention to this or we will drift. So I want to finish by just paying close attention to a few of these attributes that the writer of Hebrews draws out that we must pay much closer attention to lest we drift away. We pay close attention to the fact that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not created. He is God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. He radiates the glory of God. You look into the face of Jesus, you see the glory of God. Let us pay close attention to the supremacy of Christ in upholding the universe right now by the word of His power. If we were to take If if Jesus was actually to take his hand, if it were at all possible, off the universe, everything would descend into utter chaos. But he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let us pay close attention to where Jesus is positioned now. Where is he positioned? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means his atoning and purifying work is complete It's finished. He's seated. The job is done in terms of how sinful people can be cleansed of their sin and made right with God. The job is done. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, which also means He is there advocating for us constantly. Let us pay close attention to His suffering. Pay close attention to the suffering, the excruciating agony of Christ. Face in the dirt in Gethsemane. Suffering. The writer of Hebrews says he was made perfect through suffering. That's how he was made perfect. And therefore, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. What a wonderful statement. He's not ashamed to say, hey, they're my brother, they're my sister, they're my family. Let us pay close attention to the empathy. Think of the empathy of our great, high. Priest, who, as the writer says, was tried and tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. He knows. Isn't it comforting when you're going through something difficult and someone says, I know what it's like, but you actually know that they know. It's not comforting when they say, I know, and you're like, you have no idea. But Jesus does. He knows exactly what it's like. He was tried and tempted in every way as we are. And He intercedes. He upholds us. So therefore, we can draw near to the throne of grace, with confidence, because Jesus is our high priest. He knows. Let us pay close attention to the blood which was shed, the blood of Christ, which we're about to uh, remember now as we take the Lord's Supper together, the blood of Christ which is so utterly pure that even the most vile, most wicked of sins that you could ever think of can be cleansed by the blood of Christ. What a wonderful truth. So day after day, this is what we do. This is what we pay closer attention to. This is why we gather. This is why when we're on our own, we spend time in the word and prayer. It's all to saturate ourselves with what God has done in Jesus Christ. Just paying much closer attention. And to an infinite God, we will never get to the end. He will never exhaust himself of displaying his greatness to us. This is how we do not drift if you don't you will drift so by the grace of god we pay much closer attention to these things we stir each other on we provoke each other to love christ more deeply and to love others more deeply by the love of christ and we take the lord's supper to remember this to remember what god has done in jesus christ